Like it or not, the 2024 campaigns are well underway. And while we're still 484 days out from the presidential election, both parties are facing some very big questions. For Republicans, are they really going to renominate a now twice impeached, twice indicted candidate? For Democrats, can they reinvigorate the coalition that put Joe Biden in the White House? And how are they going to resolve a messy battle over the primary calendar? I'll ask DNC Chair Jamie Harrison about how his party plans to tackle those questions when he joins me coming up first. Plus more from my recent conversations with two of the Democratic Party's biggest names. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez discusses the dynamics of the Republican primary. And Governor Gavin Newsom explains why he's using his political capital to help Democrats in red states. And while there's so much that seems to divide us these days, music is one of the few things that brings us people together. I joined two members of the musical group, the Avid Brothers, on their tour bus and our latest weekend routine. I know it may seem like the election is pretty far off, but the truth is the very first votes of the 2024 presidential cycle will be cast just six months from now. And by this time next year, we'll be only days away from the first national convention. So it feels like the right time to dig into what exactly the Democratic Party's up to at a national level and at state level as they try to hold on to the White House, keep the Senate, win back the House, and fight for control of nearly a dozen governor's mansions. While it still feels early, the campaigns are in full swing. We see signs of this every single day as more than a dozen Republican hopefuls begin to hit the trail, test their message, and make their case to actual voters. Just this week, many spent their Independence Day in the early states of Iowa and New Hampshire. And next month, they'll be vying for the spotlight when they take the stage for their first debate. We'll see who shows up. What we don't see much of, however, in public at least, is the work taking place behind the scenes at the Democratic National Committee and at state parties across the country. The DNC, of course, is a major force behind Democratic candidates up and down the ballot and against uh, behind campaigns. They execute the ground game. They fund the state parties. They serve as a legal backstop should the need for litigation arise after the 2024 election. And those efforts are not just focused on the White House. There are also 11 governor's mansions up for grabs in 2024, as well as control of the House of Representatives, where the GOP holds a narrow nine-seat majority. Then there are also 33 races underway for the U.S. Senate, which Democrats control with just 51 seats. So there's a lot at stake up and down the ballot. And where the DNC invests their money and spends their time tells us a lot about what Democrats think will work in 2024. It's no easy road ahead. The New York Times is out with a new piece this week that touches on the predicament the DNC finds itself in as it faces resistance over its proposed new primary calendar that shifts some of the state order. And criticism, which frankly happens every year, but from some state party chairs who don't feel they are receiving enough aid and assistance as they're fighting for these down-ticket races. So how will the primary calendar get resolved? What states will Democrats prioritize this cycle? How will they handle Donald Trump's indictments and ongoing legal troubles? And what will they do about the looming threat of third-party candidates? Joining me now is the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Jamie Harrison. Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. A lot to dig into here. But I, I really want to start with, you know, we are not, we are just 18 months out from the 2024 election, not that far, even closer to the conventions. What is the DNC doing now in swing states like Arizona and Georgia that flipped Democratic in 2020 or perennial swing states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin? 
Wisconsin and Michigan to lay the groundwork that maybe people can't see? Well, Jen, you know, back in February, I saw the president right before his State of the Union. We were all in Philadelphia when we changed the primary calendar. Uh, and I told him, I said, Mr. President, I know you're doing the State of the Union. Let me give you the state of the DNC. We have never been stronger coming out of a midterm, going into a midterm and going into a presidential election. And we're only getting stronger. One of the things that we were able to do successfully in the midterm to beat back the red wave was to invest in the infrastructure of the party. Uh, and, you know, normally in midterms, the DNC is not the biggest player in the game. You, you leave that to the DS and the DCCC. But we put $100 million on the ground. And we didn't do it just a few months before the election. Jen, we actually put it on the ground a year, year and a half. And just to give folks contrast, in 2018, the DNC put $30 million on the ground. We had the largest voter protection program ever in the history of the DNC. And much of that infrastructure that we built in those battleground states for the United States Senate and, the, and uh, governor's races and the House races, that infrastructure is still there and we are building on it right now. So when you ask somebody like uh, uh, John Fetterman or Josh Shapiro or Catherine Cortez Masto about what was the big difference, many of them will tell you but for the DNC's early investment in their states to build that infrastructure, it was the, the really the linchpin for them to win their elections. And that is the framework by which we go into this presidential election in places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, Michigan. I feel really, really, really good about where we're going and our effort to make sure that we get Joe Biden and Kamala Harris reelected and that we win races up and down the ballot. Now, now, one of the issues that comes up a lot um, is this issue of third party candidates on the ballot. We are seeing uh, outside bids uh, like Cornell West seeking the Green Party nomination. Uh, we're seeing the potential or rumors that some might decide to run as third party candidates. What is the DNC's strategy to counter that threat? Because that could have an impact in determining the outcome of the election in 2024. Well, Jen, as you know, the stakes in this election could not be higher. I mean, uh, you think about the contrast that we have right now. You have a party that is fighting for freedom, for more rights and not less. And you see the most extreme Republican Party that I've ever seen in my lifetime. Uh, they're constantly chipping away at the freedoms and the rights of all the American people. So this is not the, the time in order to experiment. This is not the time to play around on the margins. And what we see is a lot of folks who want to be relevant and try to be relevant in these elections. and not looking at the big picture, that we are not going to, uh, we got to reelect Joe Biden. We have to reelect Kamala Harris because there is no third party candidate that will win this election. That has never happened in the history of this country and it ain't going to start in 2024. And so we got to stay focused on, uh, on the fight that we have ahead and at the threat that we see to American de democracy. And that's the extremists coming out of the Republican Party. Now, you, uh, of course, are a South Carolina, from um, South Carolina, proud South Carolinian, uh, your home state. Uh, and as the first primary state, it is supposed to be the first primary state, despite ongoing pushback um, from other states. President Biden is visiting South Carolina this week, reinforcing, of course, how important it is. It is diverse, like the Democratic Party base, but it is not a swing state. So my question for you is, why South Carolina? Why not Georgia or North Carolina? Also diverse states representing the base, but but more swing states. Why is South Carolina a better choice to be first? Well, Jen, you know, South Carolina has been in the early state window now for almost two decades. 
And if you look at the the other early state uh, state parties or states during that time, you look at Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada, South Carolina has been the best indicator. I think the only primary in which South Carolina did not choose the eventual nominee of the, D, uh, of the Democratic Party was when John Edwards and John Kerry ran. And, and the only reason w- for that is John Edwards is a native of, of South Carolina. But South Carolina has been the best indicator of who is eventually going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party. And why is that the case? It is be- the case because for decades, black voters have been the backbone of the Democratic Party. And uh, what happens in South Carolina has a ripple effect. What happens in North Carolina, what happens in Georgia, what happens in Mississippi, Alabama, and uh, across the country where there's significant African-American population. There's a statistic I love to to use from the National Geographic that says 90% of African-Americans in this country can trace at least one ancestor from South Carolina. And why is that? It's because 40% of enslaved people who came into this country came through the port of Charleston. And so it really is the glue for a lot of the African-American community. Uh, It has been the backbone for the Democratic Party. We have saved democracy, as we saw in the last election. uh, And South Carolinian voters, particularly the black voters, will continue to do that as the first in in the nation primary. There, there is another state uh, where a number of elected officials have uh, not have been displeased, I think it's safe to say, about the change <laughs> in the primary calendar, and that is New Hampshire. They have said they will vote first anyway, which could, of course, set up a scenario where President Biden is not on the ballot there and a candidate like RFK Jr., who has started a campaign blitz in the state, also has spread conspiracy theories, but seems to have made, at least in some polls, whether they're legit or not, some headway among Democratic primary voters. So two questions here. One is, uh, New Hampshire, what are you going, how concerned are you about the impact uh, this could have on November 2024 and that state that Democrats need to win in November? And then I also want to ask you about RFK Jr. and what you do if he ends up winning that state uh, in the primary. Listen, New Hampshire is a very, very important state, but for 50 years, New Hampshire and Iowa, uh, Iowa and New Hampshire have kicked off the presidential primary process. And the Democratic Party is a very different party than it was 50 years ago. We're a much more diverse party than we are. And so there's no state that has an ownership for how we kick this off. Now, the one thing I often correct my friends in New Hampshire in that they love to say that they're the first, but they're actually the second. They've always been the second contest. Iowa, then New Hampshire. Well, the only thing that has changed this time around, they will still be the second contest, but it's South Carolina, then New Hampshire and Nevada uh, following up. And so, you know, the president is going to still compete in New Hampshire uh, in the general election. And we're giving New Hampshire as much time as they need in order to figure out their primary process. But the bottom line is this, Jen, South Carolina is the official first in the primary uh, state for the DNC going in the 2024 election cycle. And what about RFK Jr.? I mean, it's New Hampshire where he's making a play. He's out there appearing on a range of right-wing outlets. He's spreading conspiracy theories. The DNC has endorsed Joe Biden, but he has made some headway, at least in some polls. So what are you going to do about RFK Jr.? Well, I think what we're going to do is we're going to continue to make sure that the American people, and particularly Democrats, understand how Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have delivered for them. When I think back on this presidency and I think back to what 
President Biden has done uh, in the first two years with a 50-50 Senate on a good day and less than a five-seat majority in the House, uh, it the next presidential term that I think about, I think about uh, LBJ. I mean, this has been one of the most successful presidencies in my lifetime, starting with the American Rescue Plan to the Inflation Reduction Act, to the Infrastructure Bill, to the CHIPS Act, to all of these things that we have done, transforming the judiciary. I mean, putting almost 50 of the 100 uh, judges, African-American and African-American women, more African-American women on the appellate court than any presidency, uh, all presidencies combined. And I can go on and on on how beneficial this presidency has been to the American people. The reason why we go to the polls to vote for president is to get stuff done. Well, tell me what president in my lifetime, in our lifetime, have gotten more done with almost less uh, than Joe Biden has. DNC Chairman Jamie Harrison, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. And up next, a look at what is going to take to mobilize progressive voters in 2024. I'll ask Congressman Rokana how the latest Supreme Court rulings could factor into that goal. Plus, California Governor Gavin Newsom tells me about how he's trying to help boost Democrats in Republican-led states. It's no secret that young people tend to support progressive causes, and they historically vote for Democrats. That gap has only grown wider after last year's midterm elections. Here are some numbers to chew on. In 2020, a whopping 50% of young people ages 18 to 29 turned out to vote, which was an 11-point increase from 2016. And even in 2022, about 27% of voters under the age of 30 cast a ballot during a midterm election, which traditionally have much lower turnouts. That's the highest youth turnout number in the last 30 years. And that made a huge difference for Democrats in swing states. Consider that 70% of voters between the ages of 18 and 29 voted for then-Senate candidate John Fetterman in Pennsylvania. Compare that to 55% of voters between the ages of 30 and 40. Overall, 63% of young voters broke for Democratic House candidates in last year's election. Among young voters of color, it's an even bigger margin. 89% of black youth, 68% of Latino youth voted for House Democratic candidates, compared to 58% of young white voters. But there have also been a number of crushing blows to progressive priorities in the last few weeks because of the Supreme Court decisions on student loans and affirmative action. So are those decisions energizing? Are they deflating? Where will the blame be placed? And for progressives who are not yet energized by the 2024 election, what will it take to get them there? Joining me now is Congressman Rokana of California, who's been a big champion for progressive causes that young people care about. He's a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus in the House. He was the co-chair of Bernie Sanders' 2020 campaign. So I want to start by getting your take on something a New York Times analysis piece said about how these Supreme Court rulings offer Democrats a potential way forward. The analysis said, quote, the court's decision could fuel broader outreach to the working class voters who have drifted away from the party because of what they see as its elitism. Of course, do you agree with that? But if you do, how do you think Democrats could use these recent rulings to more effectively reach out to working class voters? Well, Jen, the court is moving us backwards and young people in particular are outraged that the court is taking away the relief of student loans. They're moving to a time where 
uh, colleges used to be just for the wealthy and, and largely white. So I do think this can energize uh, young people in particular. On working class voters, I think what the president is doing in Bidenomics and saying, uh, I'm delivering what Trump promised is probably the most effective message we have. So you've said that President Biden should run on term limits for the Supreme Court, something a number of people have, all, have called for, a growing number of people. Can you, how can you articulate for me, how does he connect something like that that may sound a little bit obscure, term limits, to voters and getting them excited about the election and getting out? Well, voters know that the court is just out of touch with their lives, that the court is taking away their rights, taking away women's rights to control their own body, taking away students' uh, relief in terms of the student loans. The president forgave the loans. The Supreme Court took that money away. Uh, and they see the, these justices, they see all the ethical conflicts, and they're saying, enough with it. Let's have a clean slate. And term limits, by the way, has support not just from Democrats and independents, but also Republicans. And it's something the president's own commission has recommended. Now, you've called for term limits. Uh, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi has called for term limits. As you said, a number of people who aren't even Democrats. You have stopped short of calling for court expansion, which a lot of progressive groups have been calling for. As you've seen kind of these ethics violations and all of the rulings recently, have you rethought that at all? I've said everything should be on the table, but I was recently watching the FDR miniseries, and I saw that even FDR had trouble with it. And so it's not an easy thing to do. Often people see that it is polarizing or partisan. Uh, and I guess uh, term limits is an easier first step that would reform the court, calling for term limits and a judicial Code of Conduct of Ethics. You know, even Republicans in Congress, if we go out and have someone buy us lunch, the vast majority of us would have to disclose it and have all these ethics rules. I'm just flabbergasted that the Supreme Court doesn't have any of those. You're, you're absolutely right. The limits are so low for members of Congress, anybody who works in the federal government, and this is just a different set of rules. So your fellow Progressive Caucus member, Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, has called for Chief Justice John Roberts to be subpoenaed by Congress. Would you support that? Well, I would support hearings. I think that the chief justice should testify. You know, look, I met the chief justice. I met him mm. uh, a couple of years ago, and he said he cared about the legitimacy of the court, the legitimacy of democracy. Well, if he cares about the legitimacy of democracy, he should come testify. In past times, Supreme Court justices would meet with members of Congress and the Senate it used to be common. Part of the whole problem here, Jen, is they're so cloistered. They're so out of touch. They don't have a sense of what life is like. So my plea to him would be for the good of democracy, come testify. What are you afraid of? And if he doesn't, would you support issuing a subpoena to get him to testify? Well, I would defer to I defer to what the Senate committee, uh, which has that uh, decides. And I defer to Senator Schumer on that. So let's talk a little bit about student loans, because you've been very outspoken on this for a long time. Um, in the wake of the Supreme Court decision, the administration announced some steps, including repayment plans tied to income, but they didn't announce a pause or an extension of the pause. Do you think the uh, plan that they've announced is enough, or would you like to see them do more? It's a good first step, but they can do more, and they should do more. I mean, look, I had student loans growing up. I was fortunate 
uh, to be able to pay them back over 100,000. I don't think it, they should be forgiving loans for people like me who've done well. But we're talking about folks who are largely from working class and middle class families under the Higher Education Act. They should at least stop the interest payments. People who were promised this relief shouldn't be having their interest accrue come September until these loans are forgiven. And they should extend the pause. And under the Higher Education Act, even with the debt relief deal, they're able to have a new pause. And I think that would show students around this country, young voters that were really fighting for them. As you look to 2024, um, and as somebody who's been very outspoken on a number of progressive issues and causes, uh, what is your biggest concern uh, looking ahead to 2024? And is there a message you'd like to hear more from Democrats or even the president to get people excited about the election? Two concerns. One, let's not take young voters for granted. They're never going to vote for Donald Trump or DeSantis, but we need them as energized as they were in 2020, getting folks out to vote. And the issues they care most about are climate. The Willow Glen drilling was a mistake, in my view, Mountain Valley Pipeline, but we did have the Inflation Reduction Act. But we've got to do far more on climate, and we've got to fight for student loans and student loan relief so they know we're actually trying to improve their lives. And the second thing I would say is what the president did in uh, Chicago with Bidenomics. I mean, Trump went around this country saying communities had been left out. People were wronged. And you know what? They were wronged. We had massive deindustrialization in this country. I was just in Lordstown, Johnstown. Some of those places haven't come back. But the president needs to say he's the one after 40 years who's riding the ship, who's bringing manufacturing back, who's standing up for the working class. Trump may have a, a expressed grievances, but he's delivering. And I think those two messages combined will give him a decisive victory in 2024. Congressman Rokana, thank you so much for your time today. Next, I take a walk with one of the most prominent progressive voices, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She weighs in on what's at play in 2024 in the presidential race and shares what people get wrong about her. Plus, California Governor Gavin Newsom reflects on his 20 years in politics as an elected official. He'll explain why Fox News, yes, Fox News, is a big part of his daily routine. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has made her mark in Washington since being sworn into office in January of 2019. At that time, she was both the youngest woman and the youngest Latina to ever serve in Congress. In her years on the Hill, she's become a progressive voice people look to for guidance and reaction when things unfold, both in the Capitol and across the country. I got to chat with her recently about how she's made accountability a key part of her mission as an elected official. Here's a part of that conversation. So you're in the minority in Congress for the first time since you were elected. Mm -hmm. It seems like you're kind of having fun being a bit of an <laughs> agitator. Uh, are you enjoying that role? I think holding those in power accountable is a fundamental part of, of our role. And it's, it's a part of a role that I draw on from my history in advocacy and organizing and activism. But it's also one where we can propose solutions while we're also holding people accountable for the decisions that they're making. And so, yeah, I think it's been a it's it's been an important role for us to play. So you're also a pretty politically astute observer. There is a presidential race that's <laughs> happening right now. Donald Trump, people think some say is the easiest person for Joe Biden to run against. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Well, the easiest potential Republican nominee, yeah. I should say. 
I think there's something to be said about that. The, the dynamics of these races change from day to day. I think that uh, Governor DeSantis has made some very large critical errors, and I think he's weaker than... What are his biggest errors, do you think, as you've watched? Well, you can't out-Trump Trump, right? And that's what he's really been trying to do. His attacks on teachers, on schools, on LGBT Americans, I think go way too far in the state of Florida. Um, and I think that they are a profound political miscalculation and an overcompensation. Um, he may be trying to win a base, but that base belongs to Donald Trump. And he has sacrificed, I think, the one thing that others may have thought would make him competitive, which is this idea that he would somehow be more rational than Donald Trump, which he isn't. Now, you're very familiar with surprising people and winning a primary. Mm -hmm. Is there anyone in the Republican field, you would disagree with them completely on policy issues, but that you think maybe they have something or maybe they could take on Trump? It is early in the process. You know, I think in the House, I see the dynamics and the political dynamics in the House very often mirror some of the political dynamics happening out in the country. And I think right now the Republican Party is so disorganized that I really don't see someone that can unite that party even beyond Donald Trump. And so, to be honest, I don't because the individuals that have wanted to appeal to people's cooler senses in the party have all been driven out. Every, every Republican who voted for impeachment has been... It's no longer there. no longer there. And so I, I really struggle to find anybody that can both accomplish that task and unite their party. So you have developed this reputation. I don't know if you like this or not. As a <laughs> firebrand, yeah. what do people get wrong about you or not know about you? Um, I think very often when I meet with colleagues or individuals that I had not met with before, um, they are surprised that I do my homework a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I know when I had my first hearing. Are you a little house, nerdy and people don't know oh, this? Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> a little. <laughs> no, I think, um, yeah, it's like when I had my first hearing with Michael Cohen, people were surprised that. I tried to ask substantive questions, mm -hmm. but I think that there is this idea that you somehow can't both be an effective communicator and discuss and challenge the bounds of our political imagination on substantive grounds. And I think we can do both, and I think we should do both. So I know you're not going to talk about 10 to 15 years from now. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing 10 to 15 years from now, but in five years, are you going to be in Congress? I mean... We maybe, you know, I think um, I've always tried to approach my service in a way of what really I think would be best for people. And if it would be best for me to continue my service, um, then I will. If it's best for me to continue my service in a, in a different form, then I hope to do that like as well. Like in the Senate, for example. <laughs> <laughs> So if you were not in Congress, because you're passionate about a lot of things, mm -hmm. what would you be doing? I think, I mean, before I ever even thought about being in Congress, I've always been passionate about teaching and writing. And so maybe I would have been a teacher.
Thank you to Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for spending some time with me. More of my conversation with the Congresswoman can be found on msnbc.com. Next, Governor Gavin Newsom shares the advice he would have given to himself before he was ever elected to office. And I ask him about his Texas counterpart, Governor Greg Abbott. And later, I got an opportunity to hop on a tour bus to chat with two members of the band, the Avid Brothers, recently. They'll weigh in on which political issues they're most passionate about. We're back after this. Governor Gavin Newsom has been a key player in California politics for about two decades now. Before he was elected as governor, he served as lieutenant governor. And before that, he was the mayor of San Francisco. There's been some long-running speculation about his potential to be a Democratic presidential candidate one day. But he's recently gained more national attention for how he's pushed back against right-wing policies. He even launched a new political action committee to target red states. Just this week, the governor was in Boise, Idaho, where he, according to Politico, quote, worked rooms like a Democratic candidate without a national office. I recently got some insight into his ongoing red state tour when I spent the day with Governor Newsom in Alabama. And while he quickly shot down the suggestion he could possibly be a presidential contender in 2024, he had a whole lot of other interesting things to say, particularly about how he's hoping his PAC can help challenge leaders in some GOP states. Here's more of our conversation. So you're you're rolling up your sleeves, literally. Yeah, um, putting, you're putting money in. Now, the Democratic Party is a huge umbrella, right? Yeah. And you have strong views on abortion rights, on gun safety. Yeah. Um, on uh, LGBTQ plus rights and a range of other issues. When you're looking for candidates to support, are there certain bars they have to meet, certain positions they have to have in order for you to provide them? I mean, I think just the, the fundamental universal values that I think matter a lot. I mean, again, I'm looking for people, character uh, organizations that, that, that practice empathy, care and compassion. Uh, but I'm not looking for a litmus test. I haven't been I've been on the right side of that with my party. I mean, I've been asking for forgiveness half my life in the Democratic Party because it was too much too soon, too well, fast. Well, sometimes that is how it's approached, yeah, right? Well, Funding. So, and I dis- by the way, I dis- disagree with that. Many parts, one body. And this idea we have to have a pure litmus test, that's not the lived reality. It's not an academic exercise. We're not running a simulation. It's so a reality. You have, you, if there's a great Democratic candidate here or more who was a Democrat with you on health care, on yeah. LGBTQ rights, but maybe wasn't quite there on where you are on guns. It's okay. I get you know, it. I mean, absolutely. And, and so should everyone watching. I mean, are we that, you know, sort of full of ourselves that we have to have everybody aligned to our unique perspective? I mean, everybody has a different set of eyes, different experiences, different backgrounds, different conditions that define the terms of engagement. But there are some universal values that define the party. Uh, and I think that's what we're really looking is building the party and building, again, the institutions. And I think more than falling in love with a candidate is building organizational muscle memory. Over 20 years, looking back, what's the one big piece of advice you would have given to yourself before you were ever in elected office? Uh, before I was even elected office? About I'm, politics. I think foundationally, two things. One, you seek first to understand before you're understood. And there's humility in that. At the same time, back to this notion of just conviction and intentionality. Have it. Be your authentic self. Learn from, don't follow others. And I spent so much of my early career trying to be like somebody else. And trying I see to a lot, be like a hero or be like a be mentor. Like my, yeah, a hero, my mentor. And I think we all fall into that trap. And it's a wonderful thing. But 
learning from, not following others, allows you to express yourself with your own unique you know, circumstances and backgrounds. And at the end of the day, I think the one thing's universal I hear everywhere else, just people are like, just be authentic. Mm-hmm. Like, tell me seriously, you know, why are you here? People can see through it. They can see through it. And they can, or they didn't even see it. They feel it. Mm-hmm. And they feel that inauthenticity. In and I think all of us are prone to having people think that we're inauthentic. We're in the business mm-hmm. where we're so quick to dismiss. So as you, as you reflect on what you've learned here from talking to these legislators, are there different ways you're going to talk about issues like gun violence and the need for gun safety measures or abortion rights? Is there a messaging and language issue or is it more you say the same thing to everybody and there's more people with you than you think? The one thing I heard from everybody, including the caucus today, is they're so upset about being on the defensive. Mm -hmm. They're so upset about the messaging on the other side, the anger industry, the entertainment wing, particularly of the Republican Party, the surround sound on Fox with these you know, I don't even like saying his name, Tucker Carlson mm-hmm. or that other. I don't even know the guy from the, I mean, it's just like they're all the same. And one American news and Newsmax and, and what they're doing to divide this country to, you know, where illusion rules, not facts. Gosh. Do you occasionally turn on Fox no. time and see what happens no. just to see? Not occasionally. Um, every night. Every night. And do you think Democrats should still be appearing on Fox or should they not be appearing? On uh, Fox? It contributes to the mental health crisis in the state. So on the basis of one's own personal <laughs> conditions, I would not recommend it. My staff is quite literally tried to have interventions with me about it. They say I'm too obsessed with it, but I need to understand it. You want to know what the other side thinks? I don't want to know what they think. I want to see the patterns and what you see are patterns that emerge. So is Texas, Governor Abbott, you've had some words about him. Is that on, is that on your agenda? I don't forward? know. Private rights of bounty and criminalizing doctors uh, and all in the name of freedom one of the worst crime and murder rates in America and one of the worst mental health uh, records of any governor in America. I'm not so convinced about the merits of his leadership, but again, I, I mean, I'm sitting here, I'm just bewildered. How can the Democratic Party, eight of the top 10 murder states or Republican states, seven of the top 10 dependent states, God forbid, dependent states are red states, the life expectancy in the South and they're not expanding Medicaid and prenatal care and providing child care is jaw-dropping how they all continue to get reelected is beyond me. Infant mortality. I mean, you care about life and you look at life expectancy. You care about life and you're getting kids that are gunned down by weapons of war. Spare me all in the name of freedom as you're banning books. So again, with all due respect, we should not be on the defensive as a a Democratic Party. The Republican Party should be on their heels, not us. Governor Newsom is one of a number of Democratic governors that a lot of people will be watching over the coming years. Coming up, two members of the Avid Brothers explain how they navigate political differences and commonalities while on tour and in a part of their everyday life in their weekend routine. Sometimes we lose sight of this, but we live in a very large country with lots of people and a lot of different points of view. And those differences, especially now, can feel incredibly polarizing. But there are still some things, despite our many differences, that draw people together, like music. 
For over 20 years, the band The Avid Brothers have toured across the country, bringing their uniquely American sound and lyrics to a large, dedicated, and multi-generational fan base. Recently, I had the chance to talk with the band's bassist Bob Crawford and cellist Joe Kwan during their recent stop at Wolf Trap National Park for the Performing Arts. We discussed touring life and the commonalities in America that they see from on stage. Thank you guys so much for meeting up with me before your show. Happy yeah. to do it. Can we check out your bus? Come on. All right. Up on in. Let's see the magic happen here. It does smell amazing. Yeah. I've done this enough times where I can eyeball this now. It takes a commitment to, you know, to make coffee this way, which is why most people don't, because it takes a long time. So you spend a fair amount of time on this bus or buses like it. Does it? Begin to feel like home? This is home. More home sometimes than home does. That's the sad part. The touring exposes you to such a broad swath of people across the country. What have you observed over these years about the commonalities in America uh, as you've been touring? I mean, just the visual aspect of being on stage and looking out, right? That's something that not many people get to experience. And I feel like we're very fortunate to be able to be up there, the seven of us looking out into a crowd of people and seeing everyone smiling. No one's out there like fighting, you mm-hmm. know? And you see this like thing where music is this unifying force. In uh, 2012, I remember looking out I mean, you can see, you can see the crowd a good ways, mm-hmm. but in the first three rows, 2012, there was a guy wearing the Obama Hope shirt. Mm-hmm. And then maybe, maybe in front of Joe, where Joe would stand, there's a guy wearing the Don't Tread on Me, or the uh, the Gadsden flag that then represented the Tea Party. You know, I live in a urban-rural split community, and um, the person who says, "Hey, man, you dropped your wallet," <laughs> or the or the person who you hold the door for, or the person that you're dealing with on the day, the people in your community, people that your your kids, friends at school, their teachers, the people that you deal with on a daily basis. It doesn't feel polarized. It feels like community. Yeah. I think what happens is when we go to our phones or we go to the television, you know, that's social media. That's it takes you into a different world. Yeah. It, it, it radicalizes us. Yeah. In different ways. Are there issues, put the politics aside, but that you care about as human beings, that you watch and you worry about progress being made or not being made on? All right. So I feel like each of us, every citizen is a special interest group of one mm-hmm. and so look crawford house what's important to us Healthcare is important obviously um schools right public school kids go to public school education public schools are a big issue but now it's guns our children's safety and i think the superseding issue for me personally is democracy if we don't have uh, a stable democracy we have nothing we can't do anything what about you Unchecked gun violence, you know, uh, uh, equal rights, voting rights, uh, and mental health. Now, since you both mentioned um, gun violence, I'm not going to ask you to analyze the politics right. of it, yeah. but just culturally, why do you think there's such a disconnect on this issue? Or why do you think it's such a dividing line? We're all brands. We're on social media. And our brand can be mistaken as our identity. 
And I think guns for some people, and I want to tread just really lightly here, but I think guns have become a brand and, and, and not that. Like of pride, of a, cultural a pride. pride. It's not the gun. It's the, it's like, this is mine. This is mine. And we, and it's not just guns, right? You can take many things that people will say, this is mine. You're not taking this from me. And I think we just hit these moments where technology is changing and the world is changing and people get uh, confused and they cling to things. And um, it's just something that we're going to have to work through as a country. I think something that we're missing in the conversation and the greater conversation of social media is nuance, right? It's all become this, I'm on this team, they're on this team. And we're just going to fight in the middle and just go back to our team, regardless of who wins and loses. See, Joe's right. Like, people w- don't see nuance. Yeah. You know, or, or maybe maybe people don't want to see nuance. They just don't want to. They want to be on a team. But nuance is everything. Yeah. And context is everything. My thanks to Joe Kwan and Bob Crawford and the entire Avid Brothers team for showing me around their tour bus and reminding me of the power music has to unite us all. We're back after this quick break. That does it for me today. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. And you can now listen to every episode of the show as a podcast for free. Search for Inside with Jen Psaki wherever you get your podcast to follow the show and listen anytime on the go. We'll be back here next Sunday at noon Eastern, but stay right where you are because there's much more news on MSNBC ahead. <laughs> 